Socrates, congregation of our Lord and Saviour, Socrates. Classical Greek philosopher once famously said, I am the wisest man alive, for I know one thing. And that is that I know nothing. What he was saying is that we can be sure of one thing, and that is that we can't be sure about anything. René Descartes, the 17th century French philosopher, also had a crack at this uh, concept of certainty with a well-known statement. You probably know it well. I think, therefore, I am. But was Descartes just imagining his thoughts? Is this world just some gigantic projection of human imagination? These thoughts, these philosophical thoughts, raise fundamental questions about the certainty of truth, the reliability of information, the existence of verifiable fact. So John has been writing an epistle. It's about 2,200 words in the original Greek language. It's divided into five chapters in our English versions. And the main message of this letter is summarized uh, and it's about certainty, and it's summarized in that verse 13 that we heard. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may, and here's the word, that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. He is writing predominantly and mainly about certainty, absolute certainty, that people like you and me may know with certainty that we have eternal life. And we've already seen that central theme working out in the last few months in, as we work down through the letter. Verse 15 that we heard recently, we know with confidence that God answers prayer. Verse 18 of chapter 5, we know with confidence that Christ protects us. Our salvation is secure in the one who has promised that none of God's people will be snatched from his hand. And now John is continuing in this list of what we can be certain, we can be sure of. And so that brings us to our first point this morning. We can be sure of our identity. Now, look, listen to me. If, if you're not sure about who you are, you could go and find your passport, and then it would tell you, that is, if you have a passport. And that would tell you your identity, unless, of course, you were Jason Bourne. Fictitious character from Robert Ludlum's espionage thriller called The Bourne Identity. And if you've seen the movie made in 2002, or you've read the book, you'll know that Jason Bourne had lots of different passports. And in fact, the main thrust, certainly of the first movie, the, the, the early book that was written was, the main, the main thrust was Jason Bourne asking the question, who am I? What's my identity? Apostle John is writing to confirm with certainty that he and his fellow believers have their identity in God. He writes in verse 19, we know that we are from God. In other words, we can be sure of our identity as those who come from God, as those who are connected to God, and as those who find the essence of who we are in God. And he's not just writing here about the origin of all mankind and as special creatures made by God. In that sense, all people all over the world through all time are, are from God. No, he's being much more specific than that. He's referring to the children of God, those chosen by him 
to belong to him in Christ. And it's for people in this privileged position that God is the source of their spiritual life. To be apart from God is to be spiritually dead. And we know that John is referring to the certainty that Christians can have in their identity as children of God because he makes this contrast in the second part of verse 19. He says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world referring again to that system of, of unbelief in the grip of Satan's powerful but limited influence. John refers to Satan in his gospel as the ruler of this world. Apostle Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. Those who are under the power and the dominion of Satan are in his kingdom. They're helplessly in the grasp of the evil one and are in such darkness that they cannot even see their own desperate, captive condition. That's the condition of those who belong to Satan's kingdom. The spiritually dead, you see, have no spiritual sensitivity. Just like you could prick a corpse with a pen or a needle and you'd get no response. Those who are not in the grip of Christ, not being protected by him, are necessarily in the grip of Satan. There's, there's no third option. There's no other alternative. The Bible is very clear. You are either in the kingdom of light or you're in the kingdom of darkness. And so all of us here represented are, are in one of those two kingdoms. It's a, what we call in mathematics, a binary system. The Word of God is absolutely crystal clear on this matter, which John expresses this way in his gospel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. So what's your identity this morning? What's your identity? Is your allegiance to Christ or not? John writes here to believers and he says, we know that we are from God. But how can he be so sure? I mean, how do you know that you're from God? Well, that's what the whole letter's been about. That's what we've been looking at the last few months. He's laid out in this letter three tests that you and I may know with certainty that we are from God. And those uh, tests are obedience, love, and belief. Obedience, love, and belief. So we're just going to very briefly review those three tests now. If you want to follow in your Bibles, you can. Uh, if you want to make notes, I'll give the references as we go. But this is a, a very brief overview of these three tests which form the central backbone or thread of this epistle. Firstly, obedience, sometimes referred to as the moral test, uh, a test by which we may know that we have eternal life. Verse 3 of chapter 2, uh, John writes, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. If we're those who strive to obey him, then we know. Uh, verse 29b of chapter 2, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. If you find yourself in a situation where you are about to do something you know to be wrong, 
but you are paused and you think and you pray and you take a different course of action because you know that you love the Lord Jesus Christ, then that is a test which verifies that you are someone who has eternal life. Secondly, love, sometimes referred to as the social test. Chapter 2 and verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Chapter 3 and verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In chapter 4, verse 7, brothers, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has not been born of God and knows God. Want to know if you have eternal life? Ask yourself the question, do I love fellow Christians? In particular, do I love the people in the church to which I belong? Do I love the people that I don't necessarily particularly get on so well with and share the common interests with, but do I find myself having a love for them which is born of the love that Christ has for me? And if you can say yes to that, that's another test that shows that you have eternal life. Thirdly, belief, sometimes referred to as the doctrinal test. Chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then chapter 4 and verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. If you find yourself reading the Bible, and believing the Bible, and living by the Bible, because you're convinced and convicted that what God has said is true, then that's a strong test and an indication that you are one of God's children. John brings these three tests together at the beginning of chapter 5, and he states in two verses the summary, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. You can be sure about your true identity. You don't need to go and look at some kind of spiritual passport. You can apply these three tests that John has helpfully, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brought to us. Do you desire... Yes, you. I can't look at everybody at the same time. <laughs> Do you desire to obey God's commandments? Do you love Christ's followers? Do you love the people in this church? Everyone. Do you believe Christ's word, the Bible, is true? And are you so convinced of that that you're prepared to, to base your life on it? And if you can say yes to all three, then you can be sure that your identity is that of a child of God. You can be certain, and that's a wonderful thing. And that brings us on to our second point, because there are more things that we can be certain about. So let's look at this. We can be sure of the truth. Second point. We know, John writes, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. He uses here a special form of the verb to, to come and to give. It's a form which means that Jesus Christ has come, and in a sense, he hasn't stopped coming. That is to say, he remains and he will never leave. And he writes that Christ has given an understanding and continues to give this mindset, this thought, this attitude, which will never be taken away. And so you might ask, well, how do we know that Jesus Christ has come? 
And that's the vital question that John addresses right at the start of this letter in the first four verses. He says that he and his contemporaries experienced the reality of Jesus Christ, this God-man. They saw him with their own eyes, he says. They touched him with their own hands. They heard his voice with their own ears. They testified to Christ's character, to his lifestyle, to his powerful, miraculous acts, to his great suffering, his painful death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. And so they wrote down these factual historical accounts about Christ John wrote in his gospel, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote in theirs. You know, he didn't write this gospel because he wanted to win a literary prize. He didn't write the gospel because he had some great interest in Greek literature. He didn't write this gospel because he was looking for some kind of hobby to pass away the time when he was nearing retirement. We know exactly why he wrote the gospel, because he's told us. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote the gospel, chapter 20, verse 31. He wrote it with the express purpose that hearers like you and me and other people might come to faith, come to belief in the divine Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. He wanted people to know that Jesus Christ wasn't some ghost, that he wasn't some kind of phantom. He wasn't some kind of hollow representation of God on earth. He wanted people to know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had come to earth as a human being. And so he writes, we know that he has come. How do we know? We have the eyewitness accounts verifying the historical accuracy of Jesus Christ who lived, died and was resurrected about 2,000 years ago. Don't you find it's difficult to know today whether the information that you receive is true? Hey, I saw it on the internet. It's got to be right, hey? Well, not necessarily. Jewish uh, German philosopher Walter Benjamin famously wrote, and you may know this quote, history is written by the victors, he said. He meant that the winners of wars generally influence the records of the conflicts that they've won in their own favor. They put a positive spin on it. And that's what rulers of human empires have done down through history. How do we know how accurate the historical records are of these empires. We don't really. But here it is. The, the disciples, the, the gospel writers, wrote these accounts about Jesus Christ and their own part in his victory. And the disciples come across as, as bumbling, as somewhat stupid at times, slow to understand. And when the pressure really came on, when the battle was really intense, they took off and left him. Jesus Christ died on a cross alone. His army, if you will, of disciples had gone. And instead of, it would seem, being a victor, he was a victim. Not much of a conquest. And yet we know that he conquered sin and death. And he came as a conquering king and won a victory that is greater than any victory that's been won. What man or woman would write an account like that? There is nothing like this book. There's no, there's no history. There's no philosophy. There's no moral code like the Bible that's ever been written. All the ones that are a little bit like it derive from it. 
They're distortions of it. The Bible is unique and it contains historical, testified evidence of factual events in the past, particularly about Jesus Christ. And this Christ has come and he remains with us by the Holy Spirit. Did he not say when he ascended bodily, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's come and he remains with us by his Holy Spirit who leads us in all truth. So that you and I can test what we're hearing against this word of God. And the Holy Spirit impresses that truth on our hearts. He's given us this understanding which also remains with us. It's a word that in the Greek means literally a a capacity of knowing. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, we have the mind of Christ. It's been put this way also. We, We think God's thoughts after him. As we start to dwell in his word, we start to think like God himself, which of course is exactly what we were designed to do as those made in his image. What we have been given in this understanding is a gift that cannot be taken away. The Apostle Paul speaks about this permanence of God's gifts when he says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, can't be taken away. I don't know how often you've used the word dogmatic, not talking about some sort of bionic canine animal. Dogmatic. But it's a kind of a negative word in the 21st century. If someone comes up to you on the street and says, uh, I think you're a little bit dogmatic, generally it's not a compliment. To say someone is dogmatic is seen as being kind of critical of them. Look, it's okay for you to be convinced about what's right for you, but don't take it any further than that. Don't tell me that the truth that you're certain about is, is true for me. That's being dogmatic. Dogmatism is seen as uh, intolerance, bigotry, and arrogance today. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we know with certainty that Jesus Christ has come, and we know with certainty that he's given us understanding from God. We know that Christ remains with us by his Holy Spirit and guides us in all truth so that we can be certain about what has been, what is, and what will be. We have factual, objective history in the Bible, and we have subjective experiential experience of God's Spirit. The reality that our thinking changes as we follow Jesus more and more. And that's why we can be sure about the truth. We can be, if you will, dogmatic. (laughs) Because we can be certain. We can be certain about our identity and we can be certain about the truth which deeply affects the way we live. And that brings me to our third point now. Are you still with me? I'll take that as a yes. We can be sure about our focus. Words can be so powerful and just a few words can really hit home. Perhaps you can think of a few words that people have said to you that have either been very pleasant or very unpleasant. We can convey an awful lot in a few words. And that's exactly what John does in uh, verse 20 when he writes about Jesus Christ, God's Son. He says, He is true God and eternal life. In this uh, small set of words, he's saying that Jesus is, is not less than God. He's not other than God. He is true God. He has all the attributes, all the characteristics of God. 
Just as God is the essential and ultimate reality, he is true, so is Jesus Christ his son. And because God is true, the very life that God gives is also true. And you and I know that in our bodily existence. We experience it. You're breathing. I know that. Well, at least you were at least two minutes ago. You're breathing. Your heart is beating. You have, you have a body, a physical body. It's real. But just as real as your body is your spiritual existence, that we have all been made body and soul. The real, true God gives real, true life. When Jesus was praying what's often called the high priestly prayer, he said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know God is to be in a living relationship with the divine. To know that you as a sinner, as a rebel, have been forgiven, are holy in his sight, and have received eternal life. And that there remains for you no reason for your life ever to end because the debt has been paid and you are free. To know the one true God is to know that by faith in the Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he was sent to bring that reconciliation that we've been hearing about, that peace and harmony with God. Because Jesus is true God, he brings that certainty. And so we can be sure about that and we can be sure about the focus of our lives. We can, in the words of Scripture, look with certainty to the author and perfecter of our faith. We can confidently, as we're doing this morning, worship God and God alone. That God who's revealed himself to us in the person of his Son. Are you someone this morning who's feeling disoriented in your life. Perhaps you're feeling unsettled by the political situation in the world. You think about North Korea or North America or China. Perhaps you're concerned about the social environment that we're living in. You hear of murders and rapes in New Zealand and further abroad. Perhaps you're troubled by environmental uncertainties, the dairy outwash that seems to be trekking towards Christchurch's aqua for water supply, climate change, hurricanes in Texas. Perhaps you're getting confused by the noise of the internet. Well, what, what do I believe anymore? There's just so much out there. Perhaps you're someone who's lost direction in your life. And you don't usually think about it, but here it is. You're sitting here and I'm bringing it to your attention. Perhaps you're someone who's never found direction in life. There's only one person who can fix your focus where it needs to be to carry you through. And that divine person is Jesus Christ. See, trusting in Jesus Christ doesn't remove all the clutter and the complexity of this world, but focusing on him enables us to gain sufficient clarity, certainty and confidence to navigate our way through this world and into the next as we journey towards that paradise that we began by singing about. Are you sure about Jesus Christ this morning? 
Are you sure about your identity in Him? Are you sure that He has come and given you understanding? Are you sure that you can trust Him enough to keep your focus primarily on Him amidst the many distractions in your life and in this world? If you're not sure about those things, please come and talk to me after the service. I'm going to be out there having a coffee. And if I'm talking to somebody about something else and you come up and say to me, I'd like to talk to you about the sermon. I'd like to talk to you about certainty. I'd like to talk to you about Jesus Christ. I'm going to very politely get out of that conversation and talk to you because that's so important. So please talk to me or somebody else who knows the Lord here after the service. Don't leave here uncertain. Don't leave here uncertain. Well, he doesn't end the letter here with some parting greeting, some formal farewell with uh, a well-rounded ending of what we might consider. His final words perhaps even strike you as they struck me as being somewhat abrupt. He writes, John writes, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He's abrupt, but he's not harsh. Little children is a tender and affectionate term that he's using for people he loves in the Lord. He's an older man, a mature servant of Christ. See, it's true that Christ protects us, but we also have a responsibility to protect ourselves. And those true truths are in perfect harmony. John closes with this exhortation to keep yourself, to guard yourself against the temptation to worship idols. Idols, as we've heard, are anybody and anything that can be worshipped in the place of God. They're God substitutes. We've heard about those wooden and golden statues that people set up from Isaiah. And today we know that naturally we have this inbuilt tendency to form and craft anything and anybody into an idol that we set up to replace the position that only God and God alone must occupy in our lives. And so in the close of his letter he's saying, don't abandon the real for the false, children. Don't abandon the living for the dead. He's saying sin lovelessness, doctrinal, theological error are all incompatible with the knowledge of the true God who shepherds his flock like a shepherd. So let's continue to worship the living God together as a gathered church as we're doing this morning and as individuals. Worshiping God alone in the certainty that Christ has come and given us eternal life. You know, Socrates was wrong. We can be sure of one thing. And that is that we can be sure about Jesus Christ. We can be sure about our identity in Him. We can be sure about the truth of His coming and the understanding that He gives on our access to the true God through Him. We can be sure about that. Descartes was wrong. I can think the thoughts of God after Him. And I think the thoughts of God after Him because He is real. And He has given me that understanding. by grace in Christ alone. And I think Walter Benjamin was right. History is written by the victor. The Bible accurately records the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over sin and death. Alone, as we've heard, on a criminal's cross, an innocent man sacrificed for the crimes of other people like you and me. All scripture has been written by God and this letter is, is written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when John put pen to parchment, he did so 
so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know with certainty that you have eternal life. Amen.